There's over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Net Zero Carbon, the show here at FreightWaves, where we focus on all things around sustainability and tech and freight and logistics. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined again by Daniel McGregor of Nexia. Good morning. Good afternoon, Daniel. How are you? Hi, Tyler. Very well, thank you. I just got back from the mountains, had a few days up there, and uh, it's very nice to be able to do that, uh, catch a bit of the snow before the uh, end of the season and... Um, back in the office now for Friday afternoon for a nice uh, nice chat about how we reduce the global emissions in the supply chain. Thank you for leaving the mountains to come back and spend your Friday afternoon with me. I truly Well, I'm trying to preserve the glaciers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, uh, and I'm sorry I'm a little bit underdressed, you know, in the last 48 hours with uh, the invasion of Ukraine. I figured I'd better at least wear my Love Your Neighbor shirt to, to send a positive message to hopefully everybody like who's watching. So. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. That, you know, that's part of... We're not just environment here. We're the full ESG scope. So we talk about social and governance, all of which is relevant to the conversation. But let's dig in a little bit to, to you and Nexia. Why don't you give us um, a brief intro? You joined us for Global Supply Chain Summit a couple of weeks ago or last month by the time this airs. Um, give us just a brief reminder of who Nexia is and what you do. Yeah, so thanks, Tyler. Um, I'm Daniel McGregor. I'm the co-founder of Nexiot. Uh, we actually uh, have a head office here in Switzerland. Um, we came out of the ETH in Zurich. We had a background in uh, some pretty specialist things, um, ultra-low power embedded hardware, energy harvesting, complex systems, big data analytics, digital signal processing, and all these types of things. And um, we put them together. We realized that IoT was coming. We wanted to do something that had a big, big impact. It had to be large volume and scalable. And um, we, we realized quickly that the global supply chain needed some help. Um, it was quite surprising to us to see that um, 30, out of nearly 30 million shipping containers in the world, most of them weren't equipped um, with any sort of device or hardware or technology. And we started to tackle the problems um, there's the reasons why that that hadn't happened yet. And um, we quickly discovered that there were several barriers that needed to be resolved before this could happen. It started on the hardware side, um, but now certainly, um, you know, the hardware is existing. This is an example of one of our hardware devices that's deployed on rail cargo, on rail rail freight wagons. Um, this is the Globe Hopper 3. And um, they sent every five minutes to the cloud a whole bunch of data, but really the values on the data side. That's exceptionally cool. And I will do my best. Uh, I typically just blow through buzzwords and allow us to just kind of like skate over and like everybody knows everything. But for the sake of our listeners, IoT, Internet of Things, ideally a bunch of low cost sensors all connected via the cloud or sharing data so we can aggregate more and more data about the system and make use of that. The problem has always been, and I think this is a reason why Nexiat exists, is we can get all the hardware and all the data out there that we need. But what do you do with it once you have it, right? Talk to me a little bit about harvesting that data and making good use of it. Yeah, so I mean, it's actually true that, you know, the hardware is there. We've had GPS for 35, 40 years. Um, you know, we've all got a mobile phone since, you know, many years as well. And, um, you know, the smartphone has a whole bunch of sensors and we're extremely connected as human beings. 
So yes, the hardware is there, but it's only just really become there in terms of the price points and the capabilities, the connectivity rate that's required to give really high volume of uh, data, and then you can really do interesting things with it. So on the data side, you know, there's the question of kind of what is data? Is it zeros and ones that are coming directly from the from the hardware, or is it when you've started to clean up? Uh, that data and start to make sense of it. You need to do plausibility algorithms. You need to um, create, um, you know, sort of a, a, an ecosystem where you can leverage different sources of data in sort of a heterogeneous um, approach where you're actually integrating a- API data, integrating data from third parties, from different types of hardware. Um, but you need obviously uh, a high volume of data, like a, you know enough resolution in order to to build business intelligence that is meaningful and that, that actually beats what's be- what's come before. Exactly. And, and what's interesting about that is the longer it takes us to get this process scaled and started, the longer it takes to get those initial baselines and comparisons built so you know kind of where you're coming from. T- tell me a little bit about, let's let's pivot the conversation a hair and focus on environmental issues and how Nexiet um, thinks about how these t- type of solutions can impact positive environmental outcomes. Well, let's go a little bit back to the beginning. Um, I mean, if you think about academics and environmental science and so on, you know, we've we've already had sort of a lot of warnings from looking at deep ice cores and from, uh, you know, sort of record uh, environmental records, mud, mud deposits, all kinds of things. We can see the way that climate has changed over time. And obviously, you know, this period of man-made climate change has accelerated the, the rate of change, but climate's always been changing. We've had, you know, ice ages and so on in the past and warming periods and so on. But it's obviously that, you know, the sort of whether we're reaching a point where where the system runs away from itself, um, you know, we've got all these uh, positive feedback loops and so on in in, in environmental systems. And, um, you know, so I studied environmental science at university and I realized quite quickly that I could write a few papers probably in my lifetime and probably be read by five or more people. Um, but it's not going to drive the positive change that we need to see now. And uh, if you look at the governments of the world, they're quite preoccupied. There's a lot of sort of, um, you know, posturing and politics going on. Um, but, um, you know, we need to look to the commercial sector to find solutions that are really viable from a financial point of view, but also make bringing the change and the, the visibility on, on environmental topics and, uh, and emissions, global emissions and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, climate, climate change and so on uh, being a central part of that. So that's the kind of the background. But then, you know, you think about um, the, the data and what you can do with data. And one of the challenges is that we haven't really known the impacts because we didn't have any of this data before. This is a new source of data coming directly from the global supply chain. And, you know, actually we're dependent not just for, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the temperature being right, not that, not that it's just comfortable that we can actually live prosperous, you know, and happy lives. Um, but also, um, you know, we have to recognize um, that that data is is useful for achieving all kinds of things to optimize, um, you know, the the opportunity for business, but also to drive the positive change. And that's where we're trying to hit the sweet, sweet spot. I love it. I love it. One thing, as you were talking about the background there, the environmental science, I love boiling complex things down for our listeners into, you know, simple, maybe even sound bites. One of my favorite explanations of that environmental science expectation is, you know, climate's what we expect, weather's what we get. And so we think about much longer term horizons when we're trying to have a positive impact on that. Drill this down and make this tangible for me a little bit. What's an example of um, maybe a hardware to software solution that Nexiet has in place today that doesn't have to talk about environmental, but what's the way that we're getting that data in the hands of somebody who's making a business decision? 
Yeah. So, I mean, we started looking at uh, shipping containers and we realized that actually, you know, when we started the, the business, in, I started in 2015, founded the company and, um, you know, realized that the shipping lines and the carriers weren't in a position to do that. But we soon realized that the rail freight sector was having enormous struggles to optimize their operations to um, maintain efficiency. Um, you know, they're sort of hemorrhaging money and it's difficult to pin it down because you, you're operating a, you know, a large uh, scale um, business across many territories with many asset types, with many components, many partners. So, um, you know, by putting these devices, the one I held up earlier in, you know, sort of onto a rail car and taking data every five minutes to the cloud, you can start to, first of all, manage maintenance topics a lot better. So you could think that, um, you know, if something breaks down in the rail in the rail industry, you know, it presents a huge challenge. You've got to go and collect the objects and it's big, heavy pieces of steel, 20 tons or more. And, um, you know, just these sorts of uh, challenges of, of knowing how far something's traveled, what you're expecting to have, what's expecting to have broken. Um, you know, you have, if you have all the, the sensor data from things like uh, the vibrations and the shocks um, and the impacts, the total mileage, um, the type of uh, loading um, behavior that's gone on, the types of goods that have been loaded into it. All of these things start to come together to inform, you know, the maintenance and the operation of the fleet. And then you can even get into the route optimization and making decisions around, um, you know, which assets you take on board or which infrastructure you prefer to use. And you can really reduce a lot of costs, but also a lot of environmental waste from manufacturing processes and, um, and reclaiming, uh, you know, broken down um, assets. Very, very exciting. Is this, it makes me think of a question. We're talking about in general, I think, mobile asset sensor tracking uh, and data, data harvesting. For the specific use case you mentioned with rail lines, is there a play for a lot of that same IoT type sensor data on track lines or stationary assets that there's a gap today? Absolutely. And that's, a, you know, to be honest, a lot of rail operators are hemorrhaging money. They can't stop because they can't run, you know, when COVID arrives and people aren't traveling to work anymore, they can't reduce the number of services. You know, they actually, uh, the governments of the world generally are propping up the economy by subsidizing rail. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, you need to aggregate the data from the from the points, from the from the tracks, from the all of the sensors that you have in the in the rail infrastructure, and bring that into a platform and combine combine it with the asset data, and then you start to get visibility on your operations. Because most of the time, um, you don't know what caused something. So everybody's sort of, you know, people with domain knowledge, they might have a good guess, but they don't have proof. So when it goes up to senior management and you say, look, you know, we've chosen the wrong bearings on this part of the fleet. I know it, um, but you don't have any data to prove it. This is, a, this is a challenging discussion. Completely. And it's an interesting discussion comparing, you know, European market versus the North American market, because very, very few public transit rail lines. Are, we pretty much have Amtrak as our national public rail network, and it's consistently underfunded and underutilized. Um, whereas the private railroads, it's essentially an oligopoly, and they print money hand over fist. They have all the pricing power in the world. They still have to report to the federal, you know, Surface Transportation Board about antitrust type specific market issues. But um, that seems more to me very different than what's going on in Europe because you have such a heavy mix of rail and passenger. And you're also, you know, in, in like the fit, 50, fit for 55 type package, you're trying to really increase rail availability and decrease short haul flight. 
and try to push more people and goods onto the rail. Correct. Does that make but, sense I mean, how that yeah, is different? It's, it's totally correct, Tyler. And, you know, actually in the US at the moment, there's a big change going on um, in the US rail because, um, you know, you've got the, the, the class one railroads, then you've got the, the main asset owners on the freight side. There's about seven um, which own, you know, uh, close to 1.9 million rail cars. And they all need to do something to optimize their operations, to improve their services to the cargo owner, uh, to be able to carry more intermodal, to coordinate better in the marshalling yards and the ports. Um, you know, there's, there needs to be change in, in U.S. Uh, rail freight. And it's coming with this, this Rail Pulse initiative, which has been running now for several years. And it's a, you know, it's a real collaboration between all the major players. And Nexiot's very much involved as a, as a supplier, a vendor of technology, but also an advisor uh, to, this, to these projects. But, um, you know, it is happening. And, you know, it's very important that it does happen because we've seen what happened with capacity on the roads and roads not efficient for doing huge distances. And what we'd like to see is that, you know, trucks can be loaded onto rail for doing the, the you know, the big, the major leg and then, the, the, you take a new tractor unit, a new, um, you know, uh, uh, motor at the front of each trailer chassis, you call them, and um, you take it to the door of the last mile. You do that by road um, because you don't have road rails going to every um, every, every depot or, or factory and so on. With 35% of trucks on the road driving empty, 87 million metric tons of carbon emissions are produced annually. Leveraging machine learning and automation, Convoy is efficiently connecting shippers with carriers while reducing carbon emissions. Learn how Convoy's technology can help your business run efficiently and build toward a no empty miles future at convoy.com slash sustainability. Definitely. Yeah, we're, we're seeing a big increase, I think, from consumer demand for intermodal shipping. Uh, and the railroads, in my opinion, are just going to struggle to to make the proper investments. And hopefully they do it faster and sooner. But um, back to carbon, speaking, back to, back to yeah, carbon yeah. briefly, uh, fa- it's a, between four and seven times more efficient to carry goods per ton by rail over road. So, you, you know, it's a bit like there's a tendency in the US, uh, the North American market to to sort of adore road transport because it's predictable and, you know, it's kind of door to door and, you know, it gives gives you a sense of, of calm, basically. But also, you know, it's got to be multi-modalities our future approach. We've got to get the best out of each modality and align them better. And we do that by using data. And it's not just location. It's the conditions of the asset, the conditions of the cargo. Um, it's, the, it's the best places to leave empty assets so they get quickly reused. It's kind of a traveling salesman problem, but with lots of added complexity. Which is a painful thing, because if you've ever done the heuristic on the traveling salesman problem, it's still a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah, lots, but, of, I mean, you... lots of problems in rail, too, that are, you know, can you guys make a sensor that will like uh, shoot a taser when someone tries to break into a cargo container honest, in the port? <laughs> I, this is a really interesting question, because I wrote something recently for a U.S. publication about this topic. And, uh, you know, there was one thing which said, you know, it's a, everyone's pointing the finger at each other. It's lack of policing or it's lack of investment in security. But actually, for me, it's more simple than that. Keep the assets flowing and they don't get broken into. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But let's solve that problem in the ports, especially the West Coast will, will love us forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're getting there, actually. And, you know, it's, uh, there's no way that you can that you can put security to cover, a, a, a you know, a, a 1000 meter train because you're at one end of the train and they're breaking into the other side. So, you know, it's kind of a fantasy, really. 
I mean, it's the stuff of wild westerns, right? People on the back of the train trying to break in, loot gold. <laughs> they can't get back there fast enough, even when they're but armed it, with it makes us realize we haven't evolved that much, have we? We're still dependent <laughs> exactly. on rail and everyone's waiting for their Amazon package. You know, their iPhone is the new gold, basically. And, they're, you know, they're obviously waiting for that to arrive. And it doesn't help them if it gets opened and, uh, and disappeared. <laughs> exactly. Well, last time you and I spoke, you told me that data is the new oil. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about some of the data um, delivery tools and like analytics and BI solutions that Nextjet is delivering up to customers. Can you give us an example or two? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it depends a little bit on who we're talking about as the major stakeholder because we facilitate services for all kinds of stakeholders. And, you know, we maybe start with the asset owner. So, they, like I said earlier, they want to optimize their own operations, uh, reduce their maintenance costs, control their partner's behavior, um, make sure that they're able to provide a higher quality of service to their car, to the cargo owner and the shipper so that they can push up the premiums for the for the trip and uh, and you know and do do a better job so that starts you know sort of the the process flowing then you've got the cargo owner obviously they want to have a certain amount of data it might be related to you know the temperature the humidity the conditions of the cargo to make sure that it arrives in the highest uh, highest quality uh, you know at the at the destination um then you've got obviously, uh, you know, chemical plants and pl- uh, industrial operations. They need to know that something's going to arrive on time because they've got a plant set up um, that's been, you know, uh, configured uh, for that cargo to arrive. And it doesn't, uh, it's not uh, cheap to turn uh, the setup around and wait for a week. You know, this is a sort of a whole infrastructure that's, that's out of action. So, um, you know, it depends on who the stakeholder is. And we try to think of, the entire ecosystem, whether it's the customs, the terminals, everybody needs to, to have some of that data in order to optimize their own operations. And if you think, you know, we're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain, um, you know, we need to optimize on our uh, up, upstream and downstream either side of us. And even even sometimes our our competition, we need to facilitate better efficiency for them because we, we're dependent on them as well. Very glad you just mentioned competition because there's something interesting about this concept that um, kind of befuddles me from time to time. It, it makes sense to me that we need full end-to-end visibility across the supply chain. By necessity, that's going to cover a myriad of actors and stakeholders. And if we kind of plug in with the sensor and IoT data too, that's a lot of ground to cover. So when I think about a solution like this, I kind of think of it like a layer two blockchain that's kind of plugging into all the different um, different layer one systems and building on top of it. How do we think about the the idea of, or how does Nexiad handle interoperability as an, an avenue forward and when you're trying yeah. to bring in all the data? We know what, it, it's part of our DNA. We were so, sort of a bunch of hackers. We said, let's not, let's not reinvent the wheel. Yeah, let's take what's already existing. Let's make it better. Let's find a way to improve it. Let's take, let's take a sensor that's, we don't want to build sensors ourselves unless we have to, or we can take the components and build it, you know, but... It, right from the beginning, we were thinking about interoperability as kind of a as a as a cultural thing almost. Um, that we believe in open source, we believe in integration, we believe in connectivity and APIs. We want to have, you know, we want to provide value as broadly as possible. You know, to uh, even our own competitors, we integrate the third party sensors and and gateways into our platform. And we've always made it possible. So whilst others were maybe trying to ring ring fence their technology and make it proprietary, you know, we always have this open approach. And then also, um, you know, in terms of how we work with our customers as well, a lot of the time, you know, it depends on sort of building a relationship. And once you've reached a certain amount of trust, 
um, then you know suddenly the customer says, we've got all this historical data that we'd like to integrate. And is that valuable? Because they know us for a few years and they've worked with us closely, they've seen our attention to detail and our focus on quality. So, you know, we end up building new devices or software applications on top or together with our customers and also our competitors. We were part of a group called ITSS in Europe or TIS, um, which was um, developing the standards for, for rail uh, connectivity and IoT and rail. And, and we were a major player in that. We're doing the same in maritime as well. We work together with the United Nations, with the World Trade Organization, with maritime uh, you know, the maritime organizations, uh, especially on the digital side, to make sure that we keep this all open because, you know, we're happy to work with any so any software or any hardware because we've got to make this happen. We've got to integrate and we've got to, uh, you know, sort of develop this technology for the whole, for the benefit of all stakeholders in the supply chain. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that's super critical going forward to not throw away the investments and have stranded assets if we can harvest what's there already and then make better use of it. That's a much more efficient use of not only capital and time. How do in you, many how cases, do you think about sorry, in many, Tyler, yeah. just to say, in many yeah. cases, the non-powered mobile assets, they're not equipped yet. So, you know, we need a new hardware layer as well. We integrate what exists. We use what sensors are available. We take the very best technology that's available at any point in the market. But it's also a question of price point because we've got to equip huge fleets with these devices. Um, and they've got to work for many years and they've got to send their data at a high enough resolution to make a big impact. So there's quite a lot of elements there in play, but we're, you know, we're making that happen. So That's another important point. And, and my next question was going to be around getting this to market. You know, when you've got a fairly large CapEx, if it's a large fleet and you're putting sensors and deploying them across a fleet, you know, not only do you have the hurdle of almost a professional services bent needed to guide your customer and consult with them and build that relationship, um, so, so the questions are twofold. How do you overcome deployment costs on the front end? And how do you gain enough trust to be able to not just go spend six months on every sale, but start to scale the solution once it gets to, to that you know, provability point for a mass market adoption? Yeah, the first thing is that we help our customers to work out a solution for the CapEx. So we've got strong finance partners that we're working with. And we actually were the first to bundle the product. So bundle the hardware with the software solution platform, the connectivity, all of the parts that were needed. When we arrived, you know, you could buy a piece of hardware, but then you, you know, what do you do with it? How do you, how do you, well, how do you choose a connectivity plan? How do you manage your packet size of data? How do you even, if you have a hundred devices or more, how do you do device management and battery management? And then, you know, there's so many different elements. So we we bundle all this into a single service, and this is a very important, you know, sort of development for the industry because it makes it easy to to get into it. The barriers come down, and you can start to scale. We also advise our customers not to deploy half a fleet because then you're managing a fleet within a fleet. You know, it's got to be the big bang full fleet approach really to get the maximum benefits. Um, and then, uh, you know, back to the um, back to the question of how, you know how do we work with our customers and build the trust. I think that really they see our etiquette, they see our attention to detail, how passionate we are about it. And this makes a really big difference. They, you know, obviously working closely together with a customer and, you know, conscious of time. So maybe I'll just bring in the, an example that, um, you know, I mentioned to you previously. But, um, you know, we had a situation, there was an incident in Denmark um, about eight or nine years ago where um, a, a pocket wagon, which is like, um, what you'd call it, a, a, it's a, a platform wagon that's adapted, a rail car that's adapted to take a, a, a chassis, a truck trailer chassis. 
Um, and um, so the idea is you do the, the first and last mile with the, with the same chassis, but you put it on a rail car for the big distance. And um, so we anyway, we developed, we realized they had a problem with loading these things because it took too long. So we actually worked together with a customer and we invented this, which is a kingpin sensor to check that the kingpin is properly engaged and locked with the hitch. And this device actually has a bunch of LEDs on it that give indicators to the workers in the field, but also send the data to the cloud through this device that we that we looked at earlier. So this is the gateway, but it also has sensors on board, and this is, is energy harvesting and so on. And um, so we've we've basically become almost a standard, a new standard for for the safe loading and deployment of of um, uh, pocket wagons um, in the rail sector. Um, you know these chassis that take the truck trailer. So um, that's really nice example of working together with a customer. Within three months, we had a working prototype, and that became pretty much industry standard across Europe now. That's an exciting example, not only for the tech, the tech that's deployed, but the, the collaboration needed to bring that to market. And once it's adopted as a best practice or a best standard, it starts to just gain traction. So thank you for sharing that. Um, tell me a little bit. I know we're running short on time here, but uh, we'll have to have you back on because you and I could geek out on this for you know hours and hours and hours. But when we think about what's next for Nexia, you know, what's what's the the big win? You know, if you were going to write down your success story two years from now, what's it look like? Yeah, I think it's to um, to continue on this trajectory. First of all, to keep this culture of um, the the culture that we have amongst the team. Uh, you know, there's sort of a, a no micromanagement. It's not hierarchical. Everybody can contribute. Everyone can think of ideas. We're extremely diverse and multicultural, and I think this is extremely important for for innovation to create the right environment for innovation. So that's certainly one thing that's important to me. Um, then also to looking at, looking at obviously scaling the volume of devices deployed and gathering more data and doing more with that data to optimize all kinds of things. So a bit the question with data is you don't really know what you don't yet know. And the, the deeper we dig into it, the more data we gather, the more that we uh, you know sort of integrate that with other sources of data, then the more we discover all the time. Uh, and then it's to, to populate those services out to all of the different stakeholders. But um, I can quite imagine that we start moving into very big deployments on the maritime uh, dry container space soon, um, because um, this is the big one, really. This is the one that everyone's been talking about forever and saying, why hasn't it happened? But until now, there hasn't really been the right opportunity moment, a combination of software, hardware, um, plus um, the need or the understanding of the need. And actually, you know, that's the main way that we can optimize. So I would say, um, you know, to continue to deploy, to continue to integrate, to continue to build uh, this this uh, sort of team and culture that is, that is creating these innovations, that we can continue to work with the customers um, in the right way and, and and collaborate with them. But then we, like you said before, you know, we extend our, our uh, sort of um, source of data across infrastructure into the ports and terminals and also increase massively the volume of non-powered mobile assets. So there's 2 million rail cars in the US that need to be equipped. So I would expect to get probably half of those. And then we're talking about, you know, into the shipping containers, um, you know, the onto the dry containers and hopefully five to 10 million of those deployed in the next few years. So exciting. So exciting. And I'm, I'm most excited and happy that you went first to maintaining company culture. That shows a lot of integrity. So I'm glad. I'm glad you went there first. Yeah, it's the core <laughs> of what we do, Tyler, though, really it is. And, you know, it's so essential and also for the customers and for the market to understand this, you know. Yeah. 
Totally agree. We're running short on time. So thank you. I'm going to send a link in the show notes where everyone can go find out next at Nexiat, nexxiot.com slash careers. If anybody's interested, as you guys look definitely, like we're hiring scaling, all the so. time. So we're, we're hiring all the time at the moment. We have Perfect. to scale. We want international people. So thanks for that shout as well. My pleasure. We'll have you back on soon. Enjoy. Thanks the so much, Tyler. Lovely to catch up. Bye for now. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah.